Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Katherine Reynolds Lewis. She is the author of the book, The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever and What to Do About It. Katherine is a journalist and a parenting instructor. She teaches classes to parents and has gotten certified in teaching this method and she has spent years researching this book. It is so in-depth, cannot wait to pick Catherine's brain about all of that and more on the show today. There's a lot of really cool research that you talk about in here, and it's like clearly so well-researched. You go and interview all these people, and you even like take part in some studies yourself yes. with your daughter <laughs> as part of the book. So it's super cool to see kind of how you really just dive into um, that whole world and bring the kind of the science, but in a really accessible way. So I was curious kind of what... Um, you know, what, what, why you found this to be the topic that you wanted to write a book about. Oh, thank you for the kind words. I truly just became obsessed with this topic, trying to figure out my own kids. You know, I had spent, you know, 15 years in journalism before I started really deeply writing about kids and um, behavior. And so much of it came from having children who were wired very differently than I was and raising them in a context that was so different. And one of the great things about being a writer and especially being a journalist, they always say, write what you know. So you just, you know, (laughs) use your own questions about life and your own puzzles as inspiration. And I often go back to this day on the um, the blacktop at my kids' school where I had volunteered for playground and recess duty. I wanted that good school-home connection between my precious darling, who was the first of my little ones to go off to kindergarten. And I was standing there watching all these kindergartners play and my baby making new friends and these giant fourth and fifth grade boys nearby sort of whipping balls across the blacktop and I waved at them and asked them to stop and they just looked through me like I was a ghost and this to me was just the first big something's different here you know I don't remember kids behaving that way when I was little and then my journalist brain got interested and I started diving down that rabbit hole of research as you say and just going into Google Scholar and interviewing one researcher that led me to another 10 researchers and really making the case that we have different kids today than we had 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so we need different tools and strategies and a different mindset to approach them. 
So when you say we have different kids today, what do you mean by that? So that is my shorthand for what I believe is a crisis of self-regulation. And the book makes the case that it really is epidemic levels. So one in two kids will have a mood or behavioral disorder by age 18, according to the National Institutes of Health. So that's ADHD, anxiety, depression, suicidality, self-harm, substance addiction. And um, and then it's no longer, oh, this one kid has a problem. It's every other child in my kid's kindergarten class. By the time they graduate high school, we'll have something pretty significant going on in terms of managing their behavior, thoughts, and emotions. And to me, that just calls for a whole different mindset because it's not this small group of special needs kids who deserve some kind of different approach, but really the majority of children in this generation, even if they don't have a diagnosis, are just struggling to manage their behavior, thoughts, or emotions because they are growing up in such a different context. Um, they don't have the um, self-control of their emotions and their behavior. They don't necessarily have the confidence and the sort of resilience that you gain when you grow up with a more um, freeform, uh, you know, less structured, less micromanaged childhood. So in you actually back this up with a lot of really cool evidence in the book. One thing that I found fascinating was a study that you talk about by a researcher named Richie Poulton, Poulton yes. uh, from New Zealand. And it's kind of one of those kind of counterintuitive findings uh, where it's kind of the opposite of what you maybe think it's going to be or what, you know, like common sense would tell you that was going to happen. Uh, do you remember that or could you talk about yes, that? Yes, yes. So this is the Dunedin Longitudinal Study and it's a, one of the longest running studies of human health and behavior. I think it's been going for 30 or 40 years and every few years they check in with this group of people and um, they sort of have this whole checklist of health and mental health, behavioral health, lifestyle circumstances. But the fascinating piece that um, that I found was that they looked at kids who had early negative experiences and then looked at them as adults to see if they had developed a phobia, which is sort of what we all think of what, what if you know of like um, B.F. Skinner or Pavlov or sort of the things that we intuitively feel um, are going to happen. If you have a bad experience with, you know, a, a, a dog at, as a child, you might be scared of dogs as an adult, right? So we sort of have this in so much of our unconscious. But in fact, they found that it was the opposite reaction. So kids who had a fall from heights as a child were actually less likely to be fearful of heights. Kids who had a negative experience with water, near drowning, sort of what we would think of as traumatic, actually were no less likely to be scared of water as adults. Same thing with early separation from their parents and separation anxiety as an adult. So we think we're protecting our kids from all these negative experiences. And of course, nobody wants their child to fall from a tree and break a leg. But if that <laughs> happens, if that happens to happen to your child, you can actually say, oh, great, my kid is growing resilience and my child is learning their limits and they're learning you know, I, I can climb this far, but I can't quite climb that far. Or if I do climb that far, I need to hold on better or look for footholds. And, and the act of taking those risks is in and of itself what protects our children from anxiety as adults. 
So when we've created a childhood that is overprotected, that is everything is safe, where our kids are observed, supervised, and kept safe from the moment they wake up until the moment they fall asleep, they miss the opportunity to have those small negative experiences that teach them something about themselves, about the world, about interacting with other kids, um, and about their own resilience. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the biggest problem that children and teenagers face today is anxiety. So nearly a third of kids have anxiety in that NIH study I mentioned. And you know, just looking at the headlines and anyone who's interacting with teens knows this is a huge problem. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this is also a generation that has been protected and kept from any dangers by their parents um, in m many of our middle class and upper middle class um, you know, communities. And so they don't have that opportunity to develop resilience, to feel courageous, to understand their own limits and develop the ways to keep themselves safe because they've always had an adult doing it for them. Another one that you talk about in here that I thought was just also kind of mind-blowing is about perceived criticism uh, by Jill Hooley at Harvard. Uh, what is what is perceived criticism and how does it affect teenagers and kids? So this is a whole really fascinating area of research that hit home for me because I was raised with a somewhat critical mother and I have a tendency <laughs> myself to look for the ways to improve my children instead of just sort of my first reaction just being this love and, you know, open, everything is great, kids. So um, Jill Hooley was building on really fascinating research um, out of, I think, the 1950s in England. They were following, this group of scientists were following men who were released from an inpatient um, program for schizophrenia and looking at where they were placed, you know, whether they were living at home with family members or if they were living with strangers in a boarding house. And again, this is one of these things that's counterintuitive. You'd think if you're cared for by a parent or spouse, you would have the best chance of recovery. But in fact, they found those men were much more likely to relapse. And they dug a little deeper. They did very intense, um, long qualitative interviews with all of these um, patients and their family members. And they discovered this correlation between the level of criticism in those close family relationships and the person's likelihood of relapse. And since the 1950s, when this was first discovered, um, researchers have, again, proven this relationship, not just with schizophrenia, but with eating disorders, with depression, with all these other conditions that are psychiatric in nature that where, you know, you get treatment and then you go home and you think you're with your loved ones who are going to support you. But often those are the people who themselves are very stressed by your condition. And so they're likely kind of pick at you or nag at you or or inadvertently express this um, enmeshment with you where they just know you're going to fail again. And that sadly often leads to relapse and readmission into hospitals. So um, Jill Hooley had this brilliant um, strategy for testing this where she plays criticism into your ear from the closest family member, usually your mother, sorry to say, for those of us who are moms. And they she would play the criti critical loops that you sort of 
many of us can pick out, you know, you're so disorganized. Why didn't you send those thank you notes? You know, (laughs) the, the sort of things that you know your mom wishes were different about you. And she can show inside of the subject's brains that when they hear that criticism, their brains are likely to flip back into a depressive mode of operating. And for anyone who had a history of depression, much more likely to relapse. So this, I think, is a very profound and important finding for us as parents. Many parents have heard we're not supposed to spank our kids because in the brain it's experienced as the same thing as corporal punishment, as abuse, right? So many of us have, have you know, whether or not we were raised with spankings, we are trying our best not to strike or hit our kids. But we don't understand often yelling and criticizing has a very similar negative impact. And it also has been tied to these long-term negative impacts on mental health and even physical health. If you look at cardiac health, if you look at even unemployment rates, a lot of those adverse early childhood experiences are tied to negative long-term ramifications. So I'm not saying if you one time lose your cool and yell at your kid or criticize them or call them, you know, lazy or whatever the negative um, criticism is, that you're going to damage them for life. But if there's this repeated interaction where they are just constantly getting negative feedback from the person that they're turning to for comfort and for connection, then that can have for our most vulnerable kids, it can have really negative impacts on their mental health. Well, I just was really struck by this this Hooli research because, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, okay, well, I'm not critical. But she says, and you quote her in the book saying, this happened without, the participants weren't even aware of it. So this isn't something where the kids were like, oh, my mom is so critical of me, yada, yada, yada. It was like, the, it was happening below the radar. She says, they don't even feel like it was terrible. They were just like, yeah, yeah, that's my mother. It's like, they were mildly annoyed, but they were just you know oh yeah that's just normal that's my mom and she calls it micro stresses it's like um really kind of subtle things um that we just do um you know that we just consider reminding you know or um uh kind of nagging a little bit but that kind of add up to um a lot when they're stacked on top of each other i think right exactly and i'm not saying that like we can never have those conversations i'm just saying that the the uh, cumulative effect, as you say, of all of this all piling on top of each other, it can be very negative for our kids. Even if you walk into the room and your first instinct is, why are your feet on the couch? Why is there chocolate on your mouth? You know, all the things we notice that we want to criticize. If we can connect with our children, that will be the best thing for their mental health and truly for them to learn to cure those behaviors. So connecting first and then giving whatever correction is needing is another strategy I talk about in the book. And it doesn't need to happen in a negative, critical way. It can even be, hey, I'm noticing something about the scenario here. Would you be open to some feedback? And many children, if they are being raised in a supportive and connected household, will say, okay. And then you can say, when you put your feet on the couch and you've just come in from outside, it leaves mud on the couch and it's very hard to clean off. And would you like me to show you how to clean those stains? And kids who have, are being raised in, a, in, a, in the apprenticeship model that I talk about, you know what? They're very likely to go for it. One thing I get asked a lot by parents 
is how to find the best therapist or counselor for their teenager. And what I've been recommending people do is check out teencounseling.com. They will connect your 13 and 19 year old with a licensed professional counselor right where they spend most of their time on their smartphone. All you're gonna do is fill out a few quick questions and you'll get matched immediately with the therapist that's right for your teen. Teen Counseling is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors anytime you need. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. So visit teencounseling.com slash talking to teens and help your teen take charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Talking to Teens listeners, get 10% off your first month at teencounseling.com slash talking to teens. So I haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but one of my big interests is nutrition and specifically how to eat food that is good for your brain. And I actually wrote a cookbook a few years back full of recipes that boost your IQ. So I've done a lot of research about the best nutrition companies out there. And I wanted to tell you guys about one called Wild Foods. It's a company that specifically puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all their products, which is hard to find. They have everything from coffee to fish oil, and all their products are painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. They take their mission really seriously to fix the broken food system, and they believe, like I do, that real food is medicine. So they've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount if you use the code Talking Wild, you'll get 12% off your order at wildfoods.co. So one question that I think a lot of parents have is how do you get your kids to do what you want? And you talk about this kind of throughout the book, really, but... um, Something that I thought was really insightful was you have this kind of list. You you talk about a class where that you were teaching where you have parents kind of list, um, you know, hey, when your kid's 18, uh, how do you want them to be? And just started like listing words, and it's like independent, compassionate, self-confident, responsible, honest, optimistic, resilient, dependable. Like none of it is follows the rules without questioning them, you know. Um, but but for some reason, as a parent, you know, um, it's like just the most common thing that we want is like, how do you just get them to just follow the rules and just do what you want them to do? Um, so I guess, you know, what what's the solution to that? Yes. And this really, I'm glad you picked up on that because to me, this is really the central question of my book. And this is the reason I went into all of this research is how do I just get my kids to do what I want? And um, I I went into it thinking that was the question I needed to answer. And I learned Mm. that actually the question I should have been asking is, how do I teach my children to control themselves and do what's needed in a situation? So that I remove myself from the equation. It's not do it because mommy wants you to. It's do it because when there's a mess on the floor, someone needs to to clean it up. And I'm a responsible contributor to my household. So I'm the one who's going to do it. And that's the big goal that we want. Um, And I think we're fighting against so many things. So first of all is the dominant parenting narrative that if we, we are good parents, if our kids comply, if they behave, if they do what 
they're supposed to at every single moment that public people are watching us, right? And so and also often, do it with a do it with a yes sir. Yes, nice. yes, do it with yeah. a smile and a you know and a leave it to Beaver <laughs> a and like twinkle, right, yes. right. Yep. So so we have this idea of what we want to see, and that will give us this stamp of approval. Good mom, good dad, <laughs> right. right? But in fact, childhood is a learning process, so we should expect our kids to be a little messy, to mess up, to you know get things imperfect, and that and that it's a learning opportunity the entire time we're with them. So. Um, if we can make our home sort of this learning lab where, you know, we're just teaching them how the world works. So when you leave a dish in the dishwasher in the sink and you don't put it in the dishwasher, it's there at the end of the day when you come home and, you know, and, and everyone contributes in the household. So um, in the book, I talk about all of the research underlying self-regulation and it's really powerful. There's multiple disciplines that have shown over decades that the key to being able to manage yourself to manage your emotions, thoughts, and behavior is connection with another person. So we feel that we are part of something bigger than ourselves and we feel seen and validated. So that adult-child relationship is the foundation that has to happen first. Number two is communication around what is needed here. Um, That's not, as we talked about before, not critical, you're bad because you didn't pick up the dish, but you know, we need dishes to be clean so we can eat on them later, right? It's very straightforward and hopefully non-emotional. And then the third is this focus on capability building, that we are all works in progress, that kids are expected to mess up, and that our job as adults is not for them to be perfect out of the gate, but to always be challenging them a little bit more to grow their social and emotional skills, to better manage their thoughts, behavior, and emotions, and to get more skillfuls, helping around the house, managing their own belongings, I hope managing finances, dealing with their budget so that when they're 18 and they head off to wherever they head off to after high school, that they can succeed in the world. They don't need us anymore. And truly our job is to work ourselves out of a job. But I think many parents feel you know, being needed is is valuable and that's what we should cling to when in fact we should be trying to shed that as much as possible and pushing more responsibility onto our children in exchange for privileges. And if we tie them together that way, then our children actually are really eager to take on more if they feel it also comes with respect and freedom. So those three steps you mentioned uh, was connection and then communication and then competence. And that kind of forms like the heart of the apprenticeship model. Um, And you talked a little bit earlier about connection, but I wonder maybe if we could just talk a little bit more about that because, you know, I feel as a parent, you know, uh, naturally you're gonna be thinking, hey, I connect a lot with my kid. We watch Netflix at least twice a week, we eat meals together all the time. So what is so special about connecting and how do you do that uh, you know, as part of the apprenticeship model? Oh, I'm glad you started with this because I think many parents do feel, I spend a lot of time with my child, so we've got to be connected. But a lot of our time more and more these days is, is distracted time and we're sort of with our child physically, but we're doing a task or we're checking our email or on the phone with someone. So what I'm talking about with the connecting time, it's really important to have dedicated one-on-one time 
Um, the organization where I'm a certified parent educator, the Parent Encouragement Program calls it special time because it's the child's activity that they choose. It's directed by them. It's without a screen. So Netflix does not count. <laughs> you know, it's fine to watch Netflix with our kids or fine to watch, do video games with them. But this filling the bucket time needs to be sort of an outdoor play activity or a board game or something where you're really engaged in the real world with each other. And that is so bucket filling for our children. It really gives them more reserves to then do the challenging things we're going to ask of them. Um, the other really wonderful connecting tool that I write about in the book is family meetings. And this, I, I hear a lot of parents ask about sibling rivalry and backtalk and um, entitled kids or sort of, you know, kids who, who don't feel they have a, they owe anything to the family. And family meetings are a great cure for that because you start every family meeting with appreciations of each person in the family for what they did the previous week that you really are grateful for. And at first, our children are challenged by this because it, it requires a different lens. And even myself, I have to write during the week and I notice something that I'm really grateful for. I write it down so I can say it at the family meeting. Mm. But over weeks and weeks of doing this, you build a culture of gratitude and everyone starts noticing how much everyone else in the family can, does contribute. So you don't feel as much sort of put upon or entitled. And then the next step is you talk about old business, new business. So whatever problems have come up in the previous week, whether it's bedtime or screen times or chores, you solve it in this designated family meeting. You're not going to be negotiating it on the fly. And that's a real gift to families when you don't feel like at the moment of having to do the chores is when you're going to have a, a renegotiation of the terms. That's never good, right? And then family meetings end with allowance. So all of these connection tools, the, the last one I will just mention is that the research around neuroscience and, and connection is really powerful that we are so connected with our kids that our physiology will mirror each other. So if our kids get excited and they're yelling or they're having a tantrum and their voice is high, it's really natural for our voice to want to go up, our heart rate to speed, our breathing to speed, our bodies to start to want to mirror that. And if we can take a deep breath instead and find our zen, calm our physiology down, we have a better chance of connecting with that child and bringing them back into a regulated state than if we then give in to those impulses and start yelling or arguing back at them and then everyone spirals out of control and we're all dysregulated and nobody's using the higher order brain functions that actually will help us to solve problems and plan. So I hear that. I think that I, uh, you know, as a parent listening, I'm sure this all sounds good. We can start doing the family meetings, get the special time happening. But I can also see, you know, if you got a teenager and you haven't been kind of implementing this yet, it might just be a little bit difficult. Uh, you know, mom shows up all of a sudden like, hey, hey, we're going to start having special time and we're going to play games together. And what do you want to do? Um, you know, I could see that conversation not going super, um, super well or not the teen not necessarily being super interested in uh, all of a sudden now going and starting special activities with mom. So um, I wonder if there's any uh, if, if there's anything that you would do differently with a teenager or how you would like sort of baby step towards that or engage them um, to get them like interested in special time like that. Yes, yes. So I get this question a lot. People say, oh my gosh, I love these ideas, but 
it's too late for me. You know, my child's already <laughs> 13 or 15 or 16. And I, I once got a call on a radio show uh, for a 36-year-old who was living in her mom's basement. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I would actually say it's never too late because um, even adults can repair our relationships and to, and renegotiate the way the, how we stand with each other. So with teenagers, you know, you really want to own your piece of whatever has gone wrong in your family or your relationship. And of course, they had a piece too, but you can only control yourself and you're modeling taking responsibility for your actions. So one way to start is to say, you know what, Emma, I have to apologize to you because for the first 15 years of your life, I thought I was in charge of making you be a certain way. And I thought if I just planned your life perfectly, that everything would turn out great and you would be thankful. And I, I read this fabulous book by Katherine Reynolds Lewis. Or I listened to this amazing podcast uh, by Andy Earle that told me I'm actually really wrong and I'm not in, in charge of you. You're actually supposed to be gaining more and more control of your own life. So I'm asking, can we reset? Can we go back to the basics of our relationship, have some time together? And can I start to teach you the things that you're going to need in three years when you go off to college? And where would you like to start? And let the child start. So they may say, you know what? I really want to know how to write a check and to have a bank book and how to balance my, my check with, you know, they're going to ask for things that are adults because they actually are really yeah. eager for those opportunities. Or maybe they want to learn how to cook a full meal or they want to learn how to change the oil on the car or, you know, so start with those things that I they see. want. And then and that all those are activities that, hey, yes. we could take an afternoon and go to the bank together and yes. open a checking account and learn how that works. And that's just a whole activity that doesn't involve screens. Right. Probably <laughs> meets the definition of special time there. That, right. 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 Yeah, right. And, and you're also teaching. So you're building their capability. And um, and I think that um, <clears throat> you'll find that once your kids start doing things that are meaningful, that really do contribute to the family, they will want to do more. So you never know where it's going to come. My 13-year-old, for whatever reason, loves to weed the front lawn. So whenever she's run out of screen time and she's sort of underfoot and bugging me, I'll say, you know what? The, the lawn looks kind of weedy again. And she just zips out and and it's her. She doesn't ask for money for it. She doesn't, you know. She just loves to have that satisfaction of a job well done. And of course we appreciate it and we give her, you know, kudos for it. But um, it's that intrinsic motivation that we want to foster where our children recognize that these are things they're going to need to know how to do if they want to be homeowner someday or be independent. Um, so I, I would start with that. Um, and, you know, another way is in the back of my book, I have a list of age appropriate chores and you can, you know, just show the list to your child and say, hey, would you like to try one of these? Um, but wherever you can get traction, it may be with the activity, it may be, it may be at 1030 at night when they finally collapse in a bed. And often that's when their defenses are down, they're getting ready to sleep and they are processing the day. And that's when we really can have an impact. So that's another way to think about rebuilding that relationship um, and sort of re resetting with your teen. We're here with Katherine Lewis talking about her book, The Good News About Bad Behavior. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up on the second half of the show. 
And I think the key here is to only set rules that are truly needed. At this stage of development where my kids are, what are the most important things that they need? Or you could say, honey, I would love to drive you to the mall. As soon as you're done cleaning up your room, let me know and I'll get the car keys. And then if you're in that conversation and they're saying, oh, I don't know, you know, you could just confess and say, you know what? I don't know either. Could you take a guess of what might be going on? Because you are the expert at being your 15-year-old self, and I really don't know what your life is like. And when we surrender and admit our own, you know, limits, that is very appealing to teenagers because they want to be respected. They want to be acknowledged as the experts on their life. And truly, they are. We don't go to school with them all day long. We don't know the pressures they're under. We don't know what their interactions are like. So we have to ask permission for access to that world. And, and so even just asking them, like, take a guess, or what would you advise a friend to do? You know, that can sometimes draw them out. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.